This is CliffCentral.com. Jonathan. And Ramon is present. And for someone who has a degree, um, it appears that Julius uh, often speaks in metaphors when he attacks whites or Indians or... Mm. Well, that's what happens. Out, you know, people outside the country. And then as soon as he attacks journalists, he's you know speaking literally and it's very d- dangerous. That, that's what happens when you have these collection of degrees from the... Uh, from the science, the social sciences. I use science very loosely there. Um... And he's, he's collecting a master's now. He'll collect his PhD. We're going to call him Dr. Malema eventually, I'm sure. No doubt. Um, I, I think Dr. Malema sounds quite good for someone who wants to commit genocide. Um, so, Well, I think well, most intellectuals were the you know, purveyors of genocide. Mm. Everyone in the Khmer Rouge, the top four, mm. were students in Paris yeah. where they learned democracy. Oh, and Robert Mugabe actually studied proper degrees in uh, at Oxford, I think. Right. I mean, only, um, uh, the, the only problem, Hitler didn't have a degree because he's like a failed artist, but they should have just given him one. Like today, he would have had one. <laughs> there wouldn't be such a genocidal maniac. Well, he, he would have invented a grievance study degree, as we discussed with James on the last podcast, uh, and, and, and easily got one of those. Something like how Jewishness uh, pervades uh, Germany as a... Um, Form of oppression or something to that effect. Well, he wouldn't be wrong. Ah, there you go with your latent anti-Semitism, Ramon. Yeah. All right. So carry on with Julius. Right. And uh, Kitty Amin is his name on the show. Yes. But I think it was important to talk about journalism because we have a reputation of not liking most journalists, which is largely true, by the way. But uh, there are some that we do like. And I think one of them is in studio, Mr. Michael Apple from ENCA. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Oh, as a pleasure of mine, especially on a bloody Monday morning, of all things. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Uh, so, if you can have a distinction between what you do, are you an investigative journalist, and what you know people who just write blogs that are published in Sunday Times do, which is an opinion column? <laughs> what are the fundamental differences, you know, between those? We should probably be doing video for Mike's sort of grimaces every time Ramon <laughs> says something really trolly. <laughs> So, look, let, let me speak for myself, what, what I do. And, um, I mean, it's, it's fine and well to be called an investigative journalist. Um, it's, not, it's not a title that I have at ENCA. It's just something that I fell into um, on the basis of the fact that I, I don't like the hamster wheel of news. I don't like going to a press conference. Somebody spews out a load of rubbish. Uh, it gets regurgitated. Sometimes it gets challenged. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people giggle and chuckle when somebody spews hateful, racist bullshit. And other times, um, journalists will take that information and go, well, let's put it to the test. Let's see. So it's important to be in those press conferences and read the statements and so on. But the reality is that news happens on the ground, and and that's where I like to be, in some far-flung, unknown place where I can stay away from the trolls um, and where I can just do the work on the ground. And the beauty of television is I can show people what's going on. It's not a 
unknown source, unnamed source somewhere on a telephone as a print journalist. The beauty of television is I can show what's going on. It's very difficult to rebut what I'm showing you. This uh, investigative journalism, as you're describing it, seems to be worlds apart from the news, as you mentioned, in terms of the 24-hour news cycle, the pressure in newsrooms that I'm told about by, by journalist friends to just produce stuff that gets clicks. Um, the sense that if there's a story, you have to make it last as long as possible. So there's almost a, a forced hyperbole um, that happens in reporting. And with investigative journalism, as you're describing it, there's, it's just the story. It's kind of old school journalism, what, what people would understand of go and find out exactly what took place and tell us, tell the people. Don't make more of it than it is and don't try to create stories where there aren't. And and it's so easy for South Africans to lose sight of the fact that with I've, I was involved in the VBS report, the forensic report, a lot. And it's so easy to get lost in a couple of million to this guy, 100 million there, yeah. 2 billion looted from the bank. But, but like significantly, what are the consequences of that? Uh, I also have a segment that I do on ENCA that also just kind of fell in my lap called It's Your Money, that we have to remind people that every single cent that is spent in government, it's your money. And there has to be a consequence for how it's spent. So that VBS report, uh, just recently I, I took something out of that, that one of the district municipalities had spent uh, conditional grant money. It's not just immoral. It's downright criminal what they did. And they invested it with VBS. So I just, I mean, it's it's basic. I went and I said, well, let me look up. Okay, the streetlights are burning. They owe uh, over 280 million rand to ESCOM. Middle of the day, streetlights are burning. Just walk off the main road. There's always Kerkstraat. Every town has got Church Street. Just take, and which is generally where all the politicians kind of work and live and, and so on. Just take a 20-meter detour. There's raw sewage in the street. I could smell it before I could see it. And then I started asking questions. Like, guys, where's the contract for this? How long is this pile of rubbish that's taller than I am with used nappies and condoms? How long has it been here? Eleven months. And the story just presents itself to you, that this is the consequence. Why are South Africans not angrier about this? But this is where, and I've heard you speak about this, Jonathan, in the past, where you straddle the line between being an activist and being a journalist and making a very clear distinction between those two. Or is it okay to be in that gray area where you see injustice and you decide, well, it's only me. There's no other media here. It's only me that's going to get this out. Does that make me an activist? I, I don't know. But I'm certainly getting the truth out. Yeah. I, I mean, the activism journalism thing bothers me a lot. We've had people on the show before who have mentioned that the worry – is that students who present to journalism school now are presenting because they see journalism as the best way to take something they already hold deeply as a cause and then amplify it and broadcast it to the public. And so that, that bothers me a lot. Um, and I, I think that the problem with activism crossing over into journalism is there's too much um, incentive as an individual for you to try and 
overblow the story or report one side, not the other side more. Um, those types of things that happen. And then <laughs> it, it, it's, it's weird to me that, that journalists don't seem to see how this is the, the whole fake news phenomenon. This is how it happened. Because if you're an activist and you take your activism into journalism, you then report a story a certain way because you're trying to make a point and you don't report the whole story. But people are not stupid and because of the world being what it is now and the internet age, those facts will come out whether you report them or not. And then when you report them, what you do is you create – You people go, oh, well, what you reported is only half the story, i.e. fake news. Um, and then you create activists on the other side as well. Uh, and and this is the sort of dichotomy of, of, of that problem. Yeah, if you cover if you cover all your bases, absolutely. Which in the in the world I'm in, you have to cover your bases because you're making some serious allegations against people. If you don't cover your bases, people are well within their rights to call you out on that. But and I I'm happy to say that. Uh, I'm, in, I'm incredibly pedantic. I'm a control freak about my work. It makes me a bit of a nightmare to work with because I, I want certain things done in a particular way. Subs, if I feel the way I've said something, particularly because I wanted to get a particular uh, side across and it, it's changed, then I go with my original because um, – I was the person on the ground that saw it the way it was. Um, so unless you're changing my grammar, then don't change, don't change it necessarily. But the, the other side, the, the giving room to people to come back at you, if you don't do your job as a journalist, you're giving them ammunition. Yeah. Yeah, quite. So as, as someone who doesn't like to stay in offices, uh, tell us a little bit about where, where have you been? Where has your work, you know, taken you in, in the world or in South Africa and what are, what, how does that shape the way you see things? Because I think a travel is vitally important. It's not just going to Saint Tropez, sipping cocktails, so that's quite fun. But um, mm. it's actually about uh, – there's a great show on Netflix. I can't, remember, I can't remember the name, but the guy goes like to the worst places in the world. The Dark Tourist, I believe it's called. And he goes to Alexandra and Deep Slits. He was in one of them. And people are just having fun at a bar and doing donuts in the streets. And he's like, I don't feel unsafe. So he goes there and he says – it's bad, but you're not going to get killed because you're a tourist. So as someone who has traveled extensively, what, what are the stories that you can tell us so, that have impacted you quite a bit? So where, where have I been? Um, I've been? I've been to Zambia. I've been to Zim. I went to Kenya during the election violence. I, I was en route to Ethiopia to go to the African Heads of State Summit in Addis. When there was all that election violence in Kenya, the various tribes chopping each other up. and So I got stuck in Kenya. But it's a great thing for a journalist to get stuck in a country where there's volatility. And it sounds terrible, but it's… Oh, it's that's just, what you need to do. That's just you, the reality. You need where you need to be. So I, I was a print journalist at the time, and, and I wrote a story, The Wild West of Kenya. And I remember walking uh, the… The airport had been closed, and we'd walked to, to a particular corner of the street where the security at the hotel 
we don't we don't travel with security. We we don't have that luxury. We're not BBC, Sky, CNN. When those guys were here for the Oscar Pistorius trial, they had armed security with them. It was a joke. Anyway, so the guy said, "Listen, I can I can half and half protect you up until this point. After this, you're in trouble." Um, had an AK stuck in my face, and I realized then that. You know, Michael, you're not playing journalism anymore. There's serious consequences for getting what's happening on the ground out. So left Kenya, went to Ethiopia, saw Muammar Gaddafi. Um, very cool. I, have, I had an old stupid cell phone then that I still managed to grab a pic of the dude when he was walking with his all-female bodyguard unit. They're all dressed in this, like... Uh, naval, naval type light blue, dark blue. Yeah, the original Kanye. Oh, it was like a, a tunic, yeah. and unfortunately, most of those girls were yeah kidnapped, uh, indoctrinated. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it was it was phenomenal to just live through that, to to see the last time I, I saw him alive. But um, from there, I mean, I've been to China twice. I've I've been in in Hong Kong. I've been. Um, Recently to South America, I was sent there specifically because South Africa is going down a particular route. So the idea behind sending me and a couple of other reporters, we were in um, Argentina, we were in Brazil, I went into Venezuela, uh, was to look at, at what informed their policy decisions. How did it work out for them? And then to get that message across. Now, it's one thing to report from South Africa on what you read. But, I mean, it's phenomenal to go there yourself and see it and chat to Venezuelans. And I went to the UN emergency shelters and I chatted to UN staff and I chatted to migrants. And what is it really like back in Venezuela? How the hell are you surviving? So travel for journalism is you have to. Armchair journalism will get you nowhere. And and Jonathan, sorry. Um, when you do travel like that, how can I put this in a way that makes it comprehensible? Because my thoughts are not very comprehensible at the best of times. Do you compare that with where you're from? Do you do you when you go to Brazil or Argentina or Kenya, and you come back to South Africa? What do you think of this place? Yeah, look, you, you, it's only, it's only normal to, to equate your, your, where you find yourself to where you come from. Mm. Um, I, I'm the product of, of travel because my father was a diplomat for the South African government. He, he was in government for 33 years, old and new. He was one of the very few diplomats that was allowed to stay on, uh, after 1994. Uh, after his death, I, I found out a lot about what my father did. It wasn't strictly um, being a diplomat. Um, he never, ever spoke about it. But um, since his death, I've, I've found out a little bit more. And it's, it's important to find out who our parents are and what they do and the circumstances they find themselves in and how they justify it to themselves mm. or they don't feel they need to justify it to anybody. Um, so I, I, I spent time in the Middle East. I, I grew up in Bahrain. Um, I was After I was born, my parents went to Switzerland. Uh, the anti-apartheid movement um, set off a bomb at the embassy. 
Um, my father had been double parked purposefully. And as he walked back into the building, there was a petrol bomb that was supposed to go off, but they'd, they'd got the, the ratios wrong. So it just kind Hated of. Hated when that happens. Just kind of. <laughs> well, I'd been born, so I was safe, but it just kind of fizzled, but uh, a sign of the times. Um, and my, my parents speaking about how difficult it was to be representatives of the apartheid government in the most neutral country in the world at that stage in the 80s. Um, and how difficult that was. Then my parents moved over to Germany. Then I, I found myself in the trans sky when it was still a, a homeland. Um, and then my father was posted to the Middle East. So I, I, I appreciate that there are a lot, a lot more journalists and people that have traveled more extensively, but it, it certainly informed my worldview that people that have Wachklopper, that have, um, what do you, blinkers on. You're only doing a disservice to yourself. I, I would absolutely agree with that. And that's why we try to discuss as much as we can on the show with as many varied um, people yeah, as from possible. From all over the world. Um, all right. Let's, you mentioned some stuff and I don't want to skip over it. So uh, South America, I think South America is interesting because you mentioned in there, there are some similarities. And I think that that's absolutely correct. I know we like to look at the U.S., the U.K., maybe some countries in Europe and perhaps Asia as well. And we say, well, that's where South Africa is kind of heading. I don't think we have the underlying structures of those countries. I think we have the underlying structures of the South American countries more so. And certainly in terms of policy, Brazil seems like uh, quite similar in, in, in many of the ways their government has gone for many years and what led to um, Bolsonaro now being elected. Um, certainly, if the ANC goes left enough and if the EFF manages to maintain any kind of control, um, not necessarily complete control, but some, uh, Venezuela looks like a, a potential option. And then there's sort of Argentina in the middle, which is – essentially a banking crisis that, that just dissolved their economy. So give us some sort of insight into the most interesting things from those countries and maybe stuff that you found that people either don't know or isn't true. So Venezuela, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rumor and truth to, to the stories that come out of there. So before I went over to Venezuela, I, I did what anybody would do. I, I went on Google. I Googled. I went on um, YouTube. John Oliver has a great insert that he did on Venezuela. And through humor, he can show the outright terrible situation that's going on mm. there. But then I saw a, a clip of a, of a kid playing on a pile of money. So the Bolivar had, had – they've just introduced the sovereign Bolivar, which is backed by cryptocurrency based on the value of oil. I, I got myself some sovereign Bolivar. Um, and so so I landed in, in Brazil and I, I said I'm going to fly to Boa Vista, which is the northernmost border with, with Venezuela. And people there were like, why? Why would you – why are you doing that? So please take off your hat in the queue. Make sure you have no drugs under there. Uh, the Brazilians are, <laughs> are quite hectic about that. Um, but there, there is a lot of there's a lot of hype about what's going on in Venezuela. Not all that much interest. When I arrived at the border, um, 
the Brazilian military had set up uh, permanent internment camps that they were processing um, 700 people a day. So uh, roughly, the estimates are so varied, but it's up to 2 million people. If 2 million people are leaving your country for greener pastures, there's something wrong. Especially when those greener pastures are Brazil. Are I Brazil. Mean, it's, not, it's not like… Or uh, they're fleeing into Colombia, for goodness sake. Right. Um, so then you know there's, there's seriously something wrong. But the, the, what I found strange was when I was speaking to people in the UN camps, um, these are people that had done – they had crossed over the border. It's a 200-kilometer walk to uh, Boa Vista. Uh, which is a stronghold of Jair Bolsonaro. It's it's basically just a big military base, and him being a former a captain in the in the army, it's a big. So they don't like foreigners there. They don't like gays. They don't like blacks. They don't like journalists. They. So anyway, so the the amount of of contentment and just relief from the Venezuelan migrants that I spoke to in these camps. They have they have nothing. They they took the clothes on their back. They have no currency. It's worthless. And just to see how these people are so happy to just get uh, vaccinations, because most of the kids have got measles. There's measles outbreaks all over the place. To just get food and to get water and a place to take a dump that's decent. That's it. And how these people are so happy. And, and you know, you think to yourself, geez, you know, we moan. When in Bryanston, the lights are off for two days um, and how these people are forced to live. The guy I spoke to said, I, I lived on $1 a month. And they've reverted to a bartering hmm. system. Yeah. That, that's how bad it's become. Um, it, was, it, was, it was shocking but so enlightening. And I asked the guy, is socialism and expropriation – Without compensation, everything was expropriated there. Everything was nationalized yeah. there. And he said the – I think if I can get his words correctly, the the narco-communist regime of Nicolas Maduro has benefited – and then he, he tapped on his shoulder twice, denoting only those in the military. It's a very select few people that benefit from that system. And everybody I spoke to um, – Kind of gave the same, the same account of it, and and these people did. Were you able to establish some of their backgrounds? So uh, you know, it's not people who were in poverty their whole lives. I assume. I assume there were qualified people. Um, you know, people part of the middle class. Yeah, yeah. I spoke to a to a lawyer, a human rights lawyer. Um, unsurprisingly, he found himself drummed out of that country. I spoke to a personal trainer, who. Despite having lost 12 kilograms, they call it the Maduro diet. Mm. Um, the Minister of Agriculture, they introduced uh, bunnies to eat because it's good protein. Yeah. Um, and they reproduce quickly. Exactly. Yeah, he was pissed off that they were keeping them as pets instead of eating them. Um, but so this personal trainer said, look, it's, it's not feasible to stay in a country where people are not – they're burning more calories than they're consuming. The population is slowly starving. Um, and he said, well, I've, look at me. I've lost 12 kgs, um, and it's just not a place to, to be able to live. Interestingly, I found a, a lady who – she works two jobs and then works weekends. Uh, she cleans people's houses. Her son is, is studying to be a doctor. 
he's remaining in Venezuela to finish off his studies. So somehow that entire system is so broken, yet for free, these guys are going to continue to study to be a doctor. Um, I'm not – it's just the disparity between what what it was intended to do and the reality on the ground is just so vast. Yeah, I worry about that intention versus consequence thing because some consequences or some intentions can can never, ever, ever work or exist. Communism can never be a stateless utopia, never Ever, because you have to, you need someone to control everything and then give it away, and that is not in human nature. It's not in the interests of the Politburo. It's not in the interest of the army to give away everything to the proletariat. It, it'll never work, uh, and it certainly did not work in, in in Venezuela. Unfortunately, I suspect quite a few of those people that you might have interviewed probably sort of love Chavez. Yeah. I hope I'm wrong, but there's this thing that Maduro stuffed everything up. Chavez was the yeah, real he had hero. It going. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. I mean, it's 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 great while it lasts, and if it works for everybody, mm, and at 130 dollars a barrel, it worked for everybody. Problem was, he wasn't while. putting any money away in a rainy day fund. But it was a VBS bank on a much exactly. larger scale. Exactly. But that's all. But you can't centralize. All the money and and property and ex, and expertise and enterprise, and then expect that to carry on forever because you need new innovation, you need new technology, you need new ideas, and the bureaucracy of the state is is the antithesis of all of that. So it may last for Saudi Arabia, you know, it's lasted thirty years, but mm-hmm. not forever. That's why Dubai is building massive skyscrapers and financial services are flooding in there because they know it doesn't last forever. I mean, you place so much trust in one glorious leader to to control everything and his cronies that surround him. It's not it's not in human nature to share. That's why you have to teach kids to share. It's also it's also not in human nature to flatten everything. Every people rise above each other in in various ways. You and, you, and you cannot you suppress naturally yeah. want to. I want to be fitter than Jonathan. I run further in the gym. You naturally want to be better than somebody else. I want to read more books. I want to. It's it's part of who you are. To be say to be told we're all equal, and you must just accept that. <laughs> it's a very difficult human human uh, nature to to deal with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jordan Peterson has this uh, competence hierarchy hypothesis. You know, where where hierarchies are natural and uh, they are in in Western countries predominantly, it's it's a core of competency. So you're very good at what you do, and therefore you'll be rewarded because people will want will flood to you to get that service or that good that you do. Um, <clears throat> it's not based on on you know on race or some other weird stuff. It's just pure competence. And if you destroy all of that, well, you are equal, but uh, you don't want to be equal uh, equal in poverty and equal in despair. Mm. I'm afraid to say. Tell us a bit about what's going on in in Brazil, because <laughs> I got into a short spat, as I do, on Twitter um, some time ago. <laughs> Ramon just throwing his hands up in the air, um, and my problem is is that Bolsonaro. This was before he was elected. Uh, he had won. He had it, the election had happened, and it was going to go to runoff, and people were freaking out because it was pretty obvious he would win the runoff. Um, and the news stories were, you know, the kind of news stories that I can spot immediately are a problem. So 
Bolsonaro is uh, Brazil's Trump. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I know a headline like that is a problem just because um, that what they're doing is they're trying to demonize two things <laughs> on the assumption that the other one is correct, which it may not be. Um, but there, there's a lot of these kinds of stories about the guy. There's a lot – there is some evidence, certainly, of the guy saying things over years that you would kind of look at and go, Eesh, mm. uh, that seems like a dodgy thing to say, or that's just outwardly racist, or that seems, by Western definitions, homophobic, or mm. all of these things. Um, but I, I think actions matter uh, more than words. Words don't really scare me. Um, I, as you might know, I'm a free speech absolutist pretty much, unless mm. you're calling for outward violence. Um, and I just, I just felt that there was some of this background, but there was a whole bunch of other stuff uh, that the guy had said and a whole bunch of other things that he wanted to do. I mean, something that hasn't been widely reported on is he has turned around and said he only wants to serve a single term uh, because – uh, he doesn't believe in politicians staying in power. Now, we'll see if that actually uh, transpires. Mm. I'd be more than happy if he just follows the standard sort of two-term rule. That's okay. Um, but, but the, you know, this is part of the problems. The, the, there are negatives to every human being on the planet and yeah. positives. Uh, and a lot of journalism, certainly around politics, has become so partisan that Obama was a scandal-free presidency. Trump is just – absolute disaster um merkel is amazing um david cameron horrific uh you know they, they just and and unfortunately that's not true for any politician some of them do good they do good stuff and bad stuff so tell us about brazil let's not forget south africa in that equation oh yes absolutely i mean south africa is <laughs> goes without saying yeah uh, okay so so brazil i mean i i knew very little about Jair bolsonaro before i got there um I'd done, done a little bit of reading on the guy. He got stabbed just before I went, I, I went to Brazil. Um, and so I made a point of, of going onto the streets of, of Rio and taking a break from sipping cocktails on Copacabana Beach. Uh, we were staying right on, on the beach. It was phenomenal. I took my speedo with, um, <laughs> No, seriously, I took my speedo. I can believe it. You have, the, you have a physique to wear a speedo, unlike myself. <laughs> and so I walked into the streets, and some very enterprising uh, shopkeepers had had started printing shirts of Bolsonaro as the Godfather, that iconic. And then there was this, there was this, what looked like a knife and a stab wound. So you could wear Bolsonaro's stab wound on you. <laughs> it was it was fantastic. And I said – so, I mean, he, he doesn't uh, believe – this is what was reported about him – that women should earn the same as men. Women have a place in the home and so on. So I spoke to some women in particular and I, I asked them what they think of this guy. And they're just like, this guy is an absolute hero. This guy is amazing. We are so sick and tired of the left – Telling us that everything they're doing for us is for our own good and it's to the benefit of the broader population and all they've been doing for years and years and years. I mean, the scale of corruption in Brazil is phenomenal. You have to take your hats off to the guys. They have done a, a sterling job there. Um, and they are just so tired of corruption that they are willing to take 
anything. And I see it as there has been no alternative put up by any other political party. They are throwing their lot in with this guy who has made the right noises, whether he's going to follow through actions, as you say. Yeah. And, and what, and what are those actions? Yeah, uh, that is going to be the interesting part. There are a lot of in, there are a lot of worried people, especially from the PT, the Workers' Party, um, and a lot of a lot of lawyers. Um, there was a, there was a movement on the day I flew out of Brazil. There was a not not him um, hmm. march through the streets, and it was a massive turnout. And they they. They they don't want him, but the alternative candidate is is such. I'm sorry, he's such. A, he was such a useless whelp <laughs> that he was never going to be able to offer anything. I mean, his his uh, the guy that he was modelling himself on was sitting yeah. sitting behind bars currently, Lula da Silva. Lula, yeah. His campaign slogan was "I am Lula." Haddad is Lula. And if you're running your entire campaign based on the fact that you, you're a guy who's in prison, your demigod, your demigod <laughs> is behind bars, it's not going to work. Yeah, it's a little bit like the love Trump's hates slogan of Hillary. Like, okay, using love Trump in your slogans, it's not, it's not great um, by any means. There's an interesting thing that I, I think happens. You were mentioning lawyers, for example, that are anti-Bolsonaro. Um, the U.S. is no similar to lawyers who are anti-Trump. Um, I think it's a much healthier form of, of government, the state of government. I, I don't think it needs to be as chaotic as it currently is worldwide. But what, what you have in America now, for example, uh, probably what you're going to end up in Brazil, what we had in South Africa to some extent is you have a government that – uh, does certain things, and then you have an opposing sort of fourth estate, you have an opposing sort of judiciary, you have an opposing civil society. And so that's your check and balance. The problem, I think that's far healthier than a system where those other entities agree with the state. And so the push forward uh, is, 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 is un, unstoppable essentially and and so we see uh, the, the south african example would be the public protector you had a public protector who was pushing against the state against jacob zuma's government um and now we have a public protector who clearly doesn't is not going to push against the state really at all and we see the effect of that yeah and and without an effective opposition in that manner you're creating a lot of effective opposition in non-governmental organizations like alta afri forum Institute of Race Relations. These are the big oppositions to the state, mm. uh, not not politicians and not political parties itself. Um, but I mean, it would be lovely if we had a, a, a more concrete version of that. But it seems like to be a public intellectual here, you must say that Cyril will save us and was given a proper mandate next year because um, yeah, he hasn't had a chance to express that conversation adequately. You know, it hasn't been tried before very well. So. The thing is, even in Brazil, which is not, not well known for its constitutional democracy, it only existed since 1985, it seems to be already a bit more developed democratically than we are. They have a very healthy ju judiciary um, that stands up a lot. And I mean, Operation Car Wash, which is the, the big anti-corruption drive, that was certain sectors of government working 
to take on the executive and doing so very successfully. Hundreds of people have been arrested for that. Um, they're, they're, the level of freedom of press, uh, some journals have been, have been shot dead and some are disappearing. Some are, um, so I asked a Bolsonaro supporter yeah. about some of the comments that Bolsonaro had made in the past. You're not worth raping is what he said to a female member of cabinet, uh, the Congress. Um, and that, that clip is up on YouTube. Uh, anybody's welcome to go and sure. see that. Um, and I said, you know, wh- what about his, his stance on, on women? And he said, look, the media is, is captured. And I said, oh, there goes that word. Um, <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> so he says the media there is aligned to the left. Then I go and speak to the Workers' Party. And strangely enough, the media there is somehow managing to to hold both sides to account for what they do and what they say. And, and the left says, no, the media is controlled by the right. And that's exactly kind of where you want to be, where people – believe you to be assigned to both sides except you're criticizing both equally yeah isn't that kind of where you want to be is well absolutely what what do you make of this sort of reactivity i I think brazil is a is a great model for south africa so they have 25 years of longer actually 30 years of sort of very left-wing progressive politics which keeps doubling down. So they come in with policies, those policies don't work, they make things worse, specifically the, the economy, and that's really what matters to most people um, and what affects most people. So then they double down with a new policy to fix that policy, to make it even better, um, and they keep doubling down and doubling down. And so uh, eventually everything's in a complete state of mess. But now the ideology you sold the people to do that is obviously a left-wing progressive ideology. Um, and now there comes this word populism, right? Mm-hmm. So the the backlash to this, the reaction to it, is to go in the opposite way. Uh, and I, I worry about. I mean, I don't like the word populism because I think populism can apply to anything. Uh, Julius Malema is populist. Uh, Donald Trump, I would argue, is populist. Um, they're completely different individuals, in my opinion, and they represent different things. But you, but you get different types of populism. Absolutely. If you watched, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, Steve Bannon versus David Froome, the monk debate. Very good. I think you should, if you haven't watched mm-hmm. it, watch it. Steve Bannon said populism is here to stay. It depends on what type, the Bernie Sanders progressive type or the nationalistic Trump type. Like Brexit, populist, right? Yeah. Uh, Malema populist. I would argue ANC extreme, always has been populist. Uh, it hasn't changed at all, uh, despite what anyone else says. So, talking about the press, and if I'm, did you want to finish your point on Brazil? Yeah, it was just Sorry, about, about what you feel about so, this backlash. So, so. And if you think that's valid. So, a double down on a policy that doesn't work. In the case of Brazil, their, their social welfare program was massive. And very successful for a time. But they were inflating numbers. They were using private funds to push it into government coffers. And that's eventually what they got the president that got uh, – oh, what's her name? Um, uh, Rousseff. Yes. Dilma Rousseff. Dilma Rousseff. Where they would take they – were, they were doctoring the numbers, um, making the economy seem like it was doing a lot better than it was. And ultimately, that, that is kind of what people care about. Um, Steinhoffing the economy. Yeah. Um, if you if you don't double down on a policy that doesn't work, it's an admission that the policy perhaps doesn't work. And if you introduce a grain of doubt into an electorate's mind 
that whoever is governing you has got it wrong, then that just opens up for your opposition. So these guys will keep throwing mud at a wall until it sticks, hoping that it's going to stick. Eventually, the people that are looking at government throw the mud will go, well, this is stupid. This isn't working. And that's where it opens the door for people like Jair Bolsonaro to go, well, let's try shooting arrows. Maybe that's going to work. Problem is um, the same people that have got so much hope, and there's 150 million people that vote in Brazil. Do you know that it's a crime, it's against the law not to vote in Brazil? If you're between the age of 18 and 70, you must vote. If you don't, you have to pay a fine to government. So if you don't want to be an active citizen, then you must pay up. Ramones would be paying fines his whole life. His whole if, life. if they catch me, I just draw penises on the ballot papers. But uh, talking about journalists, uh, more generally, Michael, because I believe you are one. Uh, locally, so okay, let's just go back to VBS, a story that you have worked on before. And mm. by the way, Jonathan, we, I left the studio last week, and I just drove past the VBS corporate park. I, I did you? It's literally two kilometers down the road here. Yeah, oh, I had no idea. <laughs> Well, so anyway, don't think much activity going on there. It's quite a big building. I'm surprised for such a, a small mutual mm. bank. So, Paulie Van Vake uh, works with Lady Maverick. She wrote a piece about how funds from VBS found its way into the coffers of the EFF through various channels. Uh, she writes this piece. It's a good investigative piece. Uh, the evidence looks rock solid. Um, and then I go to a timeline and I say, this is a good piece. I go to a timeline and she's there fighting with people about the piece. Arguing that uh, it's wrong for someone to, um, uh, you know, um, just try to discredit her by calling her race out or being a woman um, and things like that. So, uh, unfortunately, the, the story becomes about her versus the EFF rather than the EFF stealing money from VBS. The problem I find that if you can't de-link the story from the journalist, one day that journalist is going to fuck up. One day, there's going to be a planted story. They're going to get facts wrong. That those mistakes happen, mm. and they sh- and they should happen because that's how you learn, right? But the problem is, if you become a brand, a journalistic brand, your brand will suffer if you make a mistake, and all your previous stories uh, will be will you know have Held a cloud, up to the light. right? Will be will, will, will you know, people will be more suspicious of you, like why Africa and Hofstadter from Sunday Times. Maybe they will find work somewhere as journalists, but not anywhere reputable. Now, we had Voldemort Pelser on here a few weeks ago or a few months ago, and he talked about, you know, journalists must stop trying to be brands. They must just do their work. What is your feeling on that? Um, and I know some of your colleagues, Nicholas Bauer, who we would love to have here, likes to play Please fine. come on the show. Come he on, like, Nick. <laughs> he likes to be opinionated, and we, we like him for it. I mean, it's fun yep. to joust with him, right? Yeah. The problem is, where does, where does the line, where is the line, and should there be a line, and more importantly, should the journalist become part of the story or, or not at all, in your opinion? Okay, so we, we are told um, that there are different styles of journalism. Sometimes it's important um, f- to place it in the mind of the viewer what is happening we are told sometimes the journalist must be put into the story. Another pet hate of yours, I've heard. Mm. Mm. Um, 
Sometimes I do believe there is a place for that. Um, recently, I'll use the sewage example. Uh, I don't know if, if, it, if it equals putting myself – but, I mean, it's unavoidable that I'm, I'm standing next to um, – I've got a stream of, of raw sewage flowing past me on my right, and I've got a pile of, of rubbish that's been there for 11 months. The aroma was overpowering. Um, and I and I said in to camera in my piece to camera I said, "You're lucky you can't smell through your television." Yeah, but I can assure you that this is bad. Now I don't know if that qualifies as putting myself in the story, but I think it's sometimes important to show that this is where we find ourselves. Mm. And so, in terms of being a brand, um. Let's look at the two sides here. Brand means credibility. Uh, would you rather buy Sangyong shoes or Nikes or Nikes, however you prefer to, uh, <laughs> to pronounce it? So people go with, oh, well, that's trusted. It will go with, with those shoes, the Nikes, the Nikes. Um, so, so much of what we're up against in the media landscape is credibility. Now, if you equate credibility to brand to Twitter followers, you got a problem. Um, some of the best journalists I know, old school journalists, are not even vaguely interested in social media. Yeah. It, is, it is a toxic cesspool. Am I saying that there's no space for it? No. It, it's a very useful platform for me. People, um, ultimately, I want people to see my story. I want I want to be able to tell people this is what's going on. If that makes me an activist, then I'll take that on the chin. But I put a lot we put a lot of ourselves into what we do. The cameraman has to stand knee deep in shit. Like it's important that what we what we have found out gets out to the public. Not everybody's watching TV, not everybody's on DSTV. Social media has found has found a great way to disseminate that information. Of course that that then that creates this impression that that you are a brand for say service delivery and it's happened after that story came out i've had people from far flung areas phoning me hi mike yeah sorry you don't know me but we haven't had houses built here for the last 5 years so and i dealt with this yesterday i said okay who's the local councillor there no this guy i said you realize that this is an elected official from within the community to serve on the council to carry out your wishes. Yeah, but he's not doing his job. I said, okay. I said, there are a thousand dysfunctional municipalities in this country. I happened to pick up on one because VBS money had gone and it interlinked. But eventually I'm going to find myself becoming a consumer watch journalist. Yeah. And as heartbreaking as it is for people – in this day and age, to not have houses and electricity for five years and to shit into a hole in the ground, um, which still happens, and to have water delivered by truck, um, whether the truck arrives or not, it's despicable. But it's very, very difficult to be everywhere at the same time, and that is where you have to withdraw yourself from a situation in a sense where – Am I going to be an activist for absolutely everybody's rights or am I going to stick to finding the truth within the context of public interest? Yeah. So I think that 
that that's fine, and I'm happy with that description. And I don't think you become an activist by reporting a story. I think you become an activist by deciding what stories you want to report and then finding them. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, and you become an activist by standing in water and acting like there's a hurricane, and there's two people walking <laughs> behind you at a leisurely pace, uh, making so as if the, you're being blown away. Yeah, even the TV lies sometimes, Mike. I'm <laughs> yeah, afraid. It's, it's, it's like we were discussing before the show. Um, you know, uh, Jim Acosta is the the icon of this problem that Ramon is describing. You know, love yourself. Uh, like Jim Acosta loves Jim Acosta, um, and the 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 issue really is is um, as well as the credibility danger that Ramon describes. Um, it, it it seems as if I mean celebrity journalism seems to me to be exceptionally dangerous, uh, and and that's because I suppose with great power comes great responsibility, uh, but at the same time uh, because. It seems as if those celebrity journalists can lose sight of what their actual role is. So their role isn't to be celebrity journalists. Their role, like Jim Acosta has become, he's a, he's a joke. Uh, it, it, and it's widely thought that within that press pool in the White House, they all don't like him pretty much because of his grandstanding, because he's made it about him and, and not about anything else. Uh, and so I think there are really good, I mean, Polly would be one. She's, I think she would fit into the celebrity journalist category at the moment. Um, and she's done good work. I, I can't uh, falter on that. Uh, but there's a danger. There's an inherent danger to that. And, and, and it, 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 it bothers me because before social media, I don't think we knew our journalists as well. And I don't think that was a bad thing. Uh, I think that we knew our newspapers, we knew our, our magazines, our publications, uh, we knew our news channels. Yes, the anchor, you knew who the anchor was, and maybe, you know, you knew who Max Dupree was, and there were a couple, but it, it, it wasn't a thing. Uh, and, and how did you, how did you become a great journalist? It wasn't by having a lot of Twitter followers, and it wasn't by being well known or sworn at by the leader of the EFF. It was by just constantly producing great work that at the end of a 30-year career, you could say, this is what I did for the world, and this is how I made a difference. Most people don't know my, my name, but my work speaks for itself. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when the media is attacked and attacked broadly, I can tell you it's, it's human nature to want to defend yourself and to defend your profession. Mm. Or your particular media house. So I've, I've been, I worked at ANN7, uh, that was owned by the Guptas. Um, it was attacked by Malema and said, we're not going to guarantee the safety of your reporters at our events. Um, I've been on the receiving end of, of a lot of hateful stuff. Um, as a result of, of just having worked at ANN7 firstly, and then the leader of a, of a political party kind of paints a target on your back. But, and now at ENCA, um, you know, I was at a press conference where he said that we had banned him while I was, <laughs> I was, I was sitting there. And the best way to rebut something so ridiculous is to play his own words back to him and then an earlier live broadcast from me at the event. Um, and strangely enough, nobody – I didn't get the trolls coming at me for that because 
it's so obvious that that is complete rubbish what he's spewing there. But um, you you inherently feel the need to to defend yourself and to def- sometimes to defend your colleagues. Poli, the, the amount of abuse that's coming her way, Ranjani's way, Max's way, Feral Hafiji's way. Um, look, I agree with you. Let the work speak for itself. There's that lovely quote, the truth is a lion, set it, set it free, it will defend itself. Um, it is very difficult. Um, we are on social media. We're expected to be on social media. We're expected to tweet from events. It's part of what you sign up, your contract, you have a brand, you have a, a social media following. It helps the company. Um, you are you are available to people 24-7 for nameless, faceless people to be able to say what they want to you, which it can it can really affect your psyche. I promise you, unless you make an active decision to switch off from from that 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 cesspool of of people, which is physiologically difficult to do, because you're getting a dopamine hit every time you you get a reply, even if it's nasty. That is right, Doc. Here's something I I struggle with a bit. So Karen Morn had a very public feud with Butterbead Ed Lamini uh, a few. Uh, a month ago or a year ago or two. So at it was a press, damn funny though. <laughs> it was at a press conference and I thought Karen is doing her job. She's trying to get to the truth of the matter and this minister is evading and obfuscating and doing all sorts of other things. Mm. Then, you know, it was, it was, I, I found Karen to be a, a good journalist in that regard, uh, in trying to get, to get the question answered in the way that was truthful and honest. The problem is then everyone says, oh, how good is Karen? And then Karen becomes like a bit of like a minor celebrity without, without intending to be so. And then we elevate these people for doing their job well to a place where – and with due respect, I think she's a great journalist – but to a place where perhaps they, it's not necessary. Um, no, I, we don't, we don't say an accountant is, is a celebrity because he cooks the books well. You or know, whoever just, the accountant was actually figured out the VBS stuff because – the truth is yeah. the journalists have reported on it, but there's a whole bunch of lawyers and accountants mm. who have figured that stuff out uh, and, and, and followed the trails. Yeah, yeah uh, look, um, get, receiving praise for, for doing your job. How, how, how desperate are we in South Africa for people that will hold somebody to account? Yeah. And I think when people go to a press conference – uh, they read out a prepared statement, and then they say, "All right, any questions?" And you go, "Yeah, <laughs> that—that's absolute rubbish. What you just said there, and their their unwillingness to to actually be accountable to the people that put them there, that pay them the millions they earn, by by virtue of asking the question." I asked Dr. William Kize, Cogter Minister, why. He, Minister, why are you not more outraged by the fact that 4.3 billion rand in municipal money went to – where is the outrage from you? No, we're going to look at this. By virtue of asking, where is your outrage? Now I'm somehow seen as, oh, this guy is a corruption buster. He's, he's going in hard. The thing is I'm asking what we should be asking. 
And that if that makes you somehow celebrate, it's it's very difficult then yeah, for you the can't journal. control it. I can't control how I'm perceived. No, you can't. I, I think it's a case of who guards the guardians because at the end of the day, the the buck kind of stops with journalists. Um, I think society relies on you. It's why you have this title of the fourth estate. Um, you are the unelected um, part of the world that controls a lot. Um, and so when you, when, when journalism is put up on a pedestal, and that's deserving in some respects, um, but when individuals amongst there get put up onto pedestals, it's, it, the, the worry just becomes, uh, who's checking, who's checking them? Are they checking themselves? And to me, it sounds like, for example, you check yourself. So you go, hold on a second, like, this is who I am and this is what I do and I'm not bigger than the thing. Um, but, but, but celebrity is fun and it's nice and it's, <laughs> it's, it's cool to have people saying cool things about you and it's even sometimes cool to have, um, people who didn't know who the hell you were saying bad things about you. People like that. They, 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 they like to have that. Mm. Um, the model for this is Donald Trump. I mean, he doesn't care whether it's good or bad. He loves it all. Mm. Uh, and, and so it's just about checking yourself really. And, and I suppose it comes down to, 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 to the individual. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, look, uh, don't kid yourself. There, there are people that journalism is not an easy world to operate in. Um, investigative journalism, even less so. Um, there are some very real consequences that we suffer as a result of the work that we do, whether it is people draw, drawing nasty cartoons of you. I think, I think poverty is is the is the. I'm, I'm not even using that flippantly. I, I I think one of the major problems we have is that journalists aren't paid enough. Uh, and obviously it's a market model and obvious and the way the market's currently structured, they don't, there isn't, there isn't just enough money for, for the job that's being done often. Uh, which is why, you know, everyone's now moving towards this pay for value model. The, 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 what we have is a, a Patreon model, what Daily Maverick now has is a sort of a premium subscriber model. Mm. Um, you know, ENCA will obviously earn money from the DSTV um, side of things, ads, yeah. from ads and things like that. Um, so they're still okay. Uh, but, you know, the Mail and Guardian is, I would imagine, likely to die unless its, its funders keep it in business. It's 30,000 uh, readers, I think. And how many advertisers really want to target 30,000 people? Especially when through social media, you can target hundreds of thousands much more easily. Uh, so... There's a big problem in this, and as you start paying people less, you know, pay peanuts, get monkeys. Uh, sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to use that word, but uh, I'm referring to Mark. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, the, 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 there's a very real problem in that. I think I, I don't know. Maybe you want to talk a bit about the future of journalism and 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 where we're going. Um, yeah, it's it's a term that's thrown around a lot. Uh, I don't particularly like the term juniorization of the newsroom, but yeah, but but it should scare you. I think it's deseniorization is the bigger problem. Yeah, okay. It's not. Right. They've the always converse, been junior yeah. reporters, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the yeah. biggest problem is that there were senior subs and senior editors. Yeah, and 
we've seen in this country we've had bloggers elevated to the position of editors of major um, newspapers. Uh, we've had um, relatively junior journalists who are clearly activists, not journalists, elevated to editorial positions. So I think it's the desenioration. Yeah, and, and is is it self-inflicted in a way? Um, not at your company specifically, but yeah, as as an industry generally. Look, uh, I I think the the media landscape industry it's it's suffering. I think uh, people that have made careers out of being sub-editors or uh, a specific a specific niche within a newsroom that's critical to the quality of the product coming out at the other end. I think there are loopholes forming where people in all facets of the industry are going, is this person really necessary? Can we do without them? There's mass retrenchments uh, in many companies. Um, and and I think it's starting to show and an indictment to the fact that I'm not – my title is not senior journalist. But amongst the pool of journalists that I work with in my newsroom – I would be one of the most senior, and that's frightening to me because I've only been doing this job for since 2005. What's that? Uh, 13 years. 13 yeah. years. That's uh, a lot. I. The thing is, where is my role model? Where is where is the person I I need to bounce ideas off? That is on the ground. That is a journalist that I can look up to. I think that is disappearing a lot. And and uh, the frustration, Michael, is that you go to Brazil, you go to Venezuela. Lots of time traveling, which I, I hate. Uh, I hope you hate too mm. uh, in transit. You do these stories and you come back and it appears with due respect, no one gives a shit. Like no one cares about what you do. Yeah. Well, you can't, you can't fight the numbers. <clears throat> so when viewership tells you that uh, a massive look at emerging markets, policy direction, the economy, uh, policy, the electorate, when when the numbers tell you that it, people just did not respond to it, it's not an indictment of the quality of the product. It, and it is, I say with respect, South Africa, an indictment of South Africans. Yeah, I've always, I, the movie industry would be a good… Uh, Sorry, I, I, I just wish to rebut that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Is it though? Because… The, the click-based uh, revenue model has been around since 20, 2008, I would suspect, somewhere around there. 2010, 2011. Right. And Gawker was the first, and then BuzzFeed started. Ten things, you know, white people do that, black people hate, et cetera, et cetera. Those things get millions of clicks. It's, I would argue it's, the, bar, it's, it's the, the, the short dopamine rush from click-bait from the medium themselves to make more money has, has colored – the good stuff, the good stuff that takes a long time to prepare, a long time to digest, a long time to make. That's not appealing anymore because I want, you know, a top 10 list of 10 reasons why Zim is an arsehole. Okay, well, can I just point out before you answer is that Heat magazine out of business. Why? Because mainstream uh, uh, mainstream publications now do what Heat does. Yeah, FHM, um, out. Gone because that now that gets done by the mainstream. So the the sort of um, – what were they called? Uh, those lifestyle magazines. No, no, no. Whatever they were, those um, ah, celebrity gossip, scandal sort of papers yeah. um, are are actually part of the mainstream now. Tabloids, I think tabloids. That's mm. it. Um, yeah. Do you know how rare it is 
and I have to 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 check myself sometimes as well. Where an article will come up, I will scroll down and I'll look at the little bar on the right to see how long is this thing. Generally, how how short is our attention spans these days as human beings? Um, if we're not tied to our cell phones for a quick, I want to scroll twice with my thumb and then I want to be at the end of the article. So it is a consequence of what we have become that long in-depth news articles, feature stories where the actual truth and, and what is most important about the story may be at the end. People are not going to get there. Um, and I accept that that is what we have become. So, for a South African standing in on the Venezuelan border to be speaking about corruption, socialism, their uh, their gas and oil reserves, and at the end to go, two million people have fled this country. That's the most important. Put policy, put everything aside. For those people, what's real is they've felt the need to get the hell out of Dodge. That is the most important piece there, that people cannot live in their own country. And sometimes – you need to reevaluate how you structure your stories so that people don't just oh, cross, let's get out of here. Yeah. It, it happens. It's news as entertainment is, right. the, is the problem. An, an ironic thing, someone like Joe Rogan, okay, we, we do podcasts, so we talk about podcasts a lot. So you must excuse us. We do, for, not for later with these things, but uh, we, we do like it a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. You can um, describe yourself like that. Uh, I don't. Though. I don't. <laughs> Except when Jordan Peterson's on Joe Rogan. Then, uh, three hours is great. Um, but that's the point. Someone like Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson or uh, – I heard one – a guy who, who trains um, mixed martial artists. Three-hour podcast. I listened to it last week. Jake the Snake, WWE wrestler. Three-hour podcast. The, great, the amount of things that I have learned through people conversing – and it goes anywhere from politics to injuries to nutrition to ideas about the world to chemtrails to whatever it is. The amount of stuff you can fit into an hour, two hour, three hour audio podcast is absolutely immense. So it's weird that our attention for audio is, is longer than ever, but our attention for text is shorter than ever. Yeah. Th- th- this, I don't know how to explain that, and I don't have a theory about it, but I'm just pointing out that your five-minute piece on ENCA in the sewage thing, mm. I think it's good to share. It's short enough that people will grab their attention and hopefully they'll see it. But if you have a podcast like this, which will be listened to hopefully by thousands and thousands of people, you're able to do everything that you do throughout the year in an hour and a half. Isn't that a bit weird? Yeah, it is. And and the thing is, what I've what I've started to do lately is, is pick up books, like just try to pick up a book. I'm reading How to Steal a Country at the moment. Um, Good book. Yeah, and and I'm just trying to focus, like focus my mind, get the ability, the stuff I had back in school in varsity, the ability to read page after page after page and get lost in a book without. Reaching for a damn cell phone. And I, so we need to get that ability back. Um, and what the result of, of such a short attention span is, as journalists, you find I need to get so, – so at ENCA, it's not a secret. We, we try to, to keep stories to 1 minute 30 where you need to be able to fit everything into that. It's, it's very difficult, very yeah. difficult. The skill is not what you put in. It's what you leave out. 
um, that becomes important. Um, but you'll, you'll find that you, you feeling the need to find the most horrific visuals that's going to capture and keep somebody's attention. Um, where sometimes the most important thing being said is just somebody standing in front of a microphone and, and it's not a horrific visual, but just get people to listen to what they're saying. That ability to, to take in information and let it stay there. Uh, I don't know if we have that ability anymore. It's, it's, it's rare. We now have to shock and awe tactic to get somebody to, to really notice something. Yeah. Uh, everything is moving this way. Ramon's right. Uh, you, there's even services now which take great books <laughs> and uh, distill them down into 15 minute audio that podcasts. That is oh. the end um, of civilization. And, and you know, you take uh, Solzhenitsyn <laughs> and you distill him down into 15 minutes and you're going, no, like you, you, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure you can kind of say what the book generally says. Mm. Uh, but there's a there's a there's a major sort of problem with that. Uh, we but it, look, we've seen it in visual as well. Uh, televisions become more popular than 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 film than, than than movies, and and yes, people binge. But at the end of the day, it's forty minutes at a time, uh, and you can stop at any time, and you don't lose yourself at all. Uh, and uh, the shortening attention span, <laughs> probably right, is kind of tending towards the end of civilization. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, just reducing the Gulag archipelago to 15 minutes. Like, that's the end of civilization. <laughs> that is really it. So, I mean, Michael, this has been illuminating, but unfortunately, you know, the boss needs a studio. Like, he owns a place or something. <laughs> so, unfortunately, we have to cut it fairly, fairly soon. Um, but based on, on your, your travels to Venezuela, um, Brazil, two countries that are more similar than we think to South Africa, and two outcomes – that are possible in this place. Mm. And I'll go back to my previous question. I don't know if you answered in a way that I like, because mm-hmm. this is, the show is about me, yeah. Michael, yeah. Or, and Jonathan too, but it's about me predominantly. It strikes my ego. <laughs> we are headed to a path that is very Venezuelan, um, and we sort of need a Brazil, a Bolsonaro. Not, we don't need him, but it would be very nice to have someone like that with all the warts and all. What can, I mean, if there is any lesson to be gained from those two countries for South Africa, is there one that you can condense in 30 seconds? Because we uh, have a short t- attention spans. Sometimes be careful what you wish for as a, as a population, as society. Um, at the end of the day, uh, we give so much responsibility to those that we elect in to basically control us at the end of the day. So be very careful who you put in those positions. Um, I, I think, I think South Africa is a mess at the moment. I, I think we have, we have so much political infighting in the governing ruling party ANC at the moment. We have a president that for a very long time was treated with kid gloves by the media because he was seen as somebody who never stood uh, right next to Jacob Zuma or wasn't in his executive at a time when the country was being looted on a wholesale level. And I think we have to ask tougher questions of those that we put into power, whether we like them or not, and be careful what you wish for. There are consequences. Yeah, I think I, I agree. But I think a good um, heuristic is that whatever power you wish to give to those that you like, give that to your enemy. 
Give the same power to your enemy and see uh, the consequences of that. So ultimately, the point is, don't give power away, <laughs> especially to politicians. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, that's a probably another hour discussion on on the the way the government in this country set up and 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 I suppose it feeds right back to you know standing next to a pile of garbage and the reality is councillors don't really. Never mind councillors, but representatives in parliament certainly don't aren't r- responsible to the to their voters. Yeah. They're responsible to their party, um, and that's that's definitely one of the circumventing power issues we have. Yeah, well, as long as there's more anarchy and more uh, secession, I'm happy. There's <laughs> this push for anarchy. We had to have one every show. The more, the more <laughs> chaos, the better, because people will take control of their lives sooner or later, just through sheer necessity. So, Michael. Do you want to be known on – I mean, you are on Twitter. I mean, do you want to punt anything that you do? After we gave him such a hard time, bloody well, give him, give him a Twitter punt for God's sake. Uh, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm, I'm just – I'm happiest when uh, when people in power don't know where I am in the country. <laughs> and uh, it sounds strange, but it's become a uh, hazard. Um, I don't think things – are as uh, are going as well as they should be, and the job that we do, um, the, the public needs to know that there's a lot of risk that we take on ourselves um, for the utopian greater good, um, and I don't think uh, that uh, I expect people to want to take selfies with me. And no, <laughs> just watch. And just listen to what's coming your way. 100%. Thank you so Let's much. Be, be more active citizens. We keep selling this to mm. people. Let's Mark, do it. Mark Apple on uh, ENCA. Uh, I'm sure you can see him pretty much all the time on there. Uh, we would uh, love to have some of your colleagues on the show as well. So <laughs> please uh, punt that. If you enjoyed the show, you can always support us on Patreon. Uh, any donations are welcome. That's how we keep the show going and develop the show. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Renegade underscore report on Facebook, the page in the group. Feel free to join as always. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. This is cliffcentral.com.